The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Do you believe that children have the right to breathe mask-free or to go outside without the latest booster shots? What about the quote-unquote right to change their gender? Where do rights come from anyway? And why would you trust doctors to give you yours? Join the discussion this month at Unofficial Pediatrics, the Substack blog run by mainstream media's least favorite pediatrician, Dr. Adrian Gaty. Dr. Gaty was one of the first doctors in the USA to speak out against lockdowns, and he continues the fight for childhood innocence and well-being. If you are looking for a doctor who fears God more than he fears Fauci, then look to the second best four-letter word you'll hear today. It's not Z-U-B-Y, it's G-A-T-Y. Check out his blog, Unofficial Pediatrics, at gaty.substack.com. That's G-A-T-Y Subscribe today for free and join the battle as he challenges big pharma, big education, and a few more Goliaths along the way. One more time, that's gaty.substack.com. Now back to the podcast. Sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand. Stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang. Y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on an author and serial entrepreneur. He's written a book which is called Failure Rules, The Five Rules of Failure for Entrepreneurs, Creatives, and Authentics. And this is Andrew Thorpe King. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Zuby. Excited to be here. Happy to talk to you. Likewise, man. I've done a very brief intro there, Andrew, but for people who are not familiar with who you are, tell them a little bit about yourself. Sure. So uh, like you said, serial entrepreneur, um, been involved in many spaces, kind of mostly a dual career in banking and finance. And music. So um, started independent record labels, uh, first one in 2000, a uh, hardcore metal label called Thorpe Records, uh, released records by uh, known bands such as Madball, Blood for Blood, Slapshot, Sheer Terror. 2006, started a record label called Sailor's Grave Records. Uh, I've worked with bands like the Coffin Cats, the English Oi Band, The Business, uh, bands like The Creep Show and many others. Um, and I've also, like I said, had a dual career in banking and finance. So on, I've owned online lending uh, companies, done financial planning, and currently in the payment space, working with uh, financial technology companies as an executive banker um, uh, in that space. Also, I've owned a gym and done other entrepreneurial things. I'm a spy novelist, so I've written a spy novel. Uh, and now I have this book, my first nonfiction book, Failure Rules, The Five Rules of Failure for Entrepreneurs, Creatives, and Authentics. Uh, and this book really kind of more 
ties together all those disparate interests uh, and kind of looks back at the lessons I've learned through some, some of the hard times and failures and challenges through these various efforts and uh, rolls them up into five rules, which I've distilled into the five rules of failure. Awesome, man. Well, we're going to, we're going to get into all that, but before we jump through that, you've gone through quite a lot of stuff there. It sounds like you've lived multiple lives. So tell myself and the listeners a little bit more about your backstory. Yeah. So I think just thinking about like the genesis of this book and just to step back, just to kind of give a brief, brief kind of concise description for your, for your viewers and for your listeners on, on what this book kind of uh, how this might land on them. So when people ask me, ask me, you know, what is this book like? The description I would give is imagine if James Altucher was a punk rocker, Ryan Holiday was a cigar smoker and Jordan Peterson was covered in tattoos and they collaborated to write a book on the value of failure. It might read like failure rules. So that'll give you a sense of, I think, what, what to expect from this book. Uh, and, and the genesis of this book really is throughout my 20s and my 30s, um, I, was, um, I, I was leading a young family. I have three children uh, and, and, and my then ex-wife. And I was really trying to find a way to make my way in the world and maximize my income and marry that, that, that money with meaning. So it was this, this striving to marry money with me, meaning uh, and to kind of utilize my my, my, concept, my highest conception of usefulness in the world, uh, the highest usefulness of my talent stack in the world, um, and how difficult that was throughout my 20s and 30s to kind of stumble in that and, and to constantly evaluate uh, what my internal spirit voice was kind of signaling to me was the best next steps to join myself succinctly with what I believe was my calling journey. Uh, and so this kind of goes through those concepts, ties them together, weaves in my experiences, layers in a bunch of case studies from virtual mentors, everybody from legendary boxer Jack Johnson to, to rocker Lemmy Kilmister from Motorhead uh, to author uh, Stephanie Land uh, to, um, you know, to commentator Glenn Beck to a variety of different people and their kind of failure stories and how their moments of failure really ended up being kind of a, a crucible moment that while it was painful and it was true failure. It actually was something that ended up reshaping them into who they were meant to be to then step into th their highest usefulness in the world. And, and that really is kind of ties back to what failure rule number one is, which is failure purifies. So similar to the way that uh, Nassim Tlaib, the author of Anti-Fragile talks about, you know, I view failure as something that, uh, you know, if, if it's metabolized wisely and viewed correctly, it can be something where you actually gain from the harm, like a hydra. You're not just resilient where you get back up and keep going. You actually get back up stronger with that exponentiality kind of intact. I hear that. So tell me more about your life story. Where did you grow up? Uh, grew up in the Philadelphia area, lived there for most of my life, then moved out uh, to the Midwest to Toledo, Ohio. Uh, it's in Northwest Ohio, close to Detroit for about seven years. And that's really where I really got the... Um, uh, the momentum going um, for my career in the music industry. Uh, I had already started my, my first record label when I moved out there, but I moved out there to work for, uh, at the time was an independent music distributor, Lumberjack Distribution, which ended up getting purchased by Mordan. Um, and uh, did a lot of great work there, was part of some of the early um, retail program uh, setups for large bands like All American Rejects, uh, bands like... Um, Poison the Well on Trust Kill Records uh, and, and many other kind of big name independent bands where they kind of were on smaller independent labels that went through this distribution company. And 
I was really, I was one of the top salesmen there and, and did a lot of the retail program set up there and was doing my record labels at night. And eventually that blossomed into something that was full-time for a while before I kind of hit some turbulence. What was that turbulence? Um, well, I think a lot of it had to do with kind of the creative destruction of the transition from the, you know, the, the piping of the, of the physical retail landscape uh, to the digital, uh, the digitization of music, right? So where, you know, uh, in hindsight, long tail, uh, you know, now owning the IP rights to over 120 releases, I see that as, as, as a great thing. But in the height of it, I had a lot of physical product out in the market. It was hard to anticipate how soon that was going to more radically shift towards digital music. Streaming wasn't a thing yet, uh, but iTunes was starting to be a thing. Uh, I had overinvested in a few releases and got overextended and overleveraged. And at the same time, this digitization of music started to accelerate. Uh, but you still had to kind of um, cooperate with the physical market. Uh, and, and that whole model where you're shipping out a lot of physical product on release date, paying a lot of money for pricing and positioning and listening stations throughout the retail stores and dealing with the risk of uh, returns coming in, which have their own attendant fees attached to them. And that th th those percentages started getting worse as the digi digitization occurred. And I found myself in, in a hole where I actually had to kind of, um, you know, shift from going full-time in the music industry to uh, part-time and kind of lay off the infrastructure of the full-time operation and turn it into more of a managed portfolio of IP rights over time. And I've since maintained that for, you know, about, um, you know, 15 years now. I hear that. So given what you mentioned was going on in the music industry at that time, I'm presuming you're talking about the mid 2000s, which is also around the time I started, which is, yeah, exactly. that transition from the physical to the digital. I think a lot of people forget or perhaps don't realize to begin with that the music industry was really the first one to go through this digital revolution in a way. I'd say that the camera industry and the music industry were really the first to go through that process, which others have trans transitioned through over the past 15 to 17 years. And some, I think it's still yet to happen. Um, but yeah, that was, a, that was a difficult and complicated time, depending on what sort of business model people were running. I myself, even as an independent musician who self-releases and runs my own label, had to, yeah, make a lot of, make a lot of changes. And it was, it was difficult. It was tricky. I mean, now people are familiar with streaming and downloading and this mm -hmm. and that, even downloading. I mean, stuff has really shifted more towards streaming. Oh, yeah, it's all streaming. People forget that word didn't mean anything to anyone 20, 20 years ago. That's right. I mean, I remember when downloads first happened, it was really viewed as froth, as extra. I mean, you know, there were some people that were proponents that it would eventually be the core, uh, you know, format. Um, but nobody was really in the industry convinced of that. There was still this nostalgic attachment to holding the physical product, to seeing the artwork, to reading the lining, liner notes. And, and I think like the foresight to know that oncoming generations weren't going to be attached to that. It wasn't quite there to the degree that it should have been soon enough. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think I was probably victim to that mentality to a degree. I hear that. As someone who is in the music industry and has been for a long time, what are your thoughts on where it is now and also how it's changed since you've gotten involved? Do you think it's overall improved? Do you think that a lot has been lost in this digitization? 
Do you think that it's a combination? What are your perspectives on that? I honestly think it's better now. It's okay. better for the artist. I think the disintermediation, disintermediation is amazing. I mean, I think of like the SoundCloud rappers and Lil Peep and, and that whole genre and how that really blossomed because of disintermediation to the point where the actual kind of tagging of the genre you know, has the word SoundCloud in it, which is emblematic of the disintermediation. And I think that's amazing. So there's obviously you know, less barriers to entry, but then there's also more noise and more competition. Uh, uh, whereas before there's a limited amount of gatekeepers. And if they chose you, you, you had a higher probability of success. Whereas today, uh, it, I think it's harder to get noticed, although easier to get your stuff out there. Uh, so it presents its own challenges, but I think net net, it's better for the artists. And, but I still think record labels uh, who operate with certain models and certain niches have uh, value still, uh, but it's less and it has to be more uh, kind of targeted. Uh, bands still need branding. They still need, you know, often uh, kind of a nexus entity to help connect them with other artists, artists and, and, and get them that networking boost. They still need financing for certain things, whether it be marketing or, you know, even just uh, tour support or whatever it might be. So I still think labels have a, 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 uh, have a role. It's just less. Uh, and I think both artists and labels have to be more choosy when choosing each other now, because they, they both either have, more options or on the label side, more risk. So mm -hmm. do you think something has been lost with the decline of the physical medium, both in terms of the quality of the music itself and the way that people actually consume and listen to it? Because I think that in my opinion, I do think something has been lost. Um, I think that the focus shifting from short singles and things that work on Spotify or Apple music playlists away from the full blown album as a body of work has changed the way that people make music in various ways across genres. But I also think that in the past people used to, you know, put an album on and, and play it all the way through. And now when I see people, especially young people listening to music, that's, it's all over the place, right? It's, it's, it's skipping around all the time. It's playlists. It's listening to the first 30 seconds, first one minute, then getting bored and skipping around. And I do think that for not all artists, but certainly for some artists, I, I wonder if it's created a bit of a fast food culture for music. Um, I don't know if that's something, you know, technology is going to be technology and it's going to yeah. do what it does. But as an artist and a music fan, who's in my mid thirties, I, I do remember, you know, even when I was 14 or 15, yeah. the excitement of a new album and waiting for the physical CD to drop and going it, getting it, as you said, looking at the artwork, looking at the liner notes, listening to it all the way through, mm -hmm. not just jumping around all the time. There was something, there was something special about that in the anticipation, in the consumption. And yeah. I also think that, you know, certainly in hip hop and in rap music, I think that you know, people don't make the, I think the album quality has declined. I, I think that things have been so focused on making a hot single, making, uh, you know, something that can catch attention on a playlist. I don't know if you've noticed even in hip hop, I mean, the average song has, has shr shrunk from three verses to one to two verses, right? People barely even make three verse songs anymore. Everything's been cut down. And I understand that because of the format, but I am thinking that something may have been lost there. Yeah, I think there's it's it's like anything else in life. It's it's the trade off dynamic, right? I think you, you do kind of trade off uh, some of that holistic experience of a full album listen for the increased discoverability 
uh, of streaming, of people having a risk-free access to music through a streaming service, whereas before they might not try you out because they didn't want to shell out whatever it might be, $16, $17 for, for a CD or even $10 for a full album download, right? So I think that discoverability is the upside and the downside is, yes, you're going to have more of this a la carte environment where people are just consuming, you know, one or two songs and they try out, they may, may not get the full experience of an album to really digest your art and figure out, uh, you know, really what you're trying to convey. Um, but, you know, I think for me, from being more into like the rock side, uh, you know, talk about, you talk about two, two, uh, two chorus songs. I mean, coming from the punk rock world, everything's short and fast, you know, <laughs> that's normal for me, but, I mean, I, I still like to consume albums end to end when when you have, um, you know, artists releasing just one or two signals prior to the full length. Um, you know, I'll listen to them, but it almost spoils the uh, anticipation and the full experience of release day when the full album comes out for me. Because, you know, I, I, I almost would have rather heard those songs in the context of the full album, but... I'm also uh, a, a sucker and can't, you know, you know, can't not listen to it when it comes out early, if it's a band I really like, you know. I hear that. So, Andrew, you've written a whole book on the topic of failure. What made you want to write a book on failure? Failure is something I don't think people generally like to talk about, let alone admit on their own part, let alone bring to the public and highlight in any way. So what made you want to write a book on that particular subject? Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, I think that's kind of the crux of what made me want to do it. I was, I was, it was a period of my life where I had, I, I was, um, you know, reflecting on, I was taking a beach walk and I was reflecting on all the different entrepreneurial off-road adventuring I had done for the past two decades and all the things I encountered and challenges and difficulties and, and near catastrophic events that occurred and, and what I had learned from them and how I had grown from them and how I had gotten through them. And even what were the the inputs of wisdom and inspiration from virtual mentors or people I knew that helped me get through those and helped me kind of give me more strength to move forward and continue to take calculated risks with, with, uh, with, with better, you know, uh, vision. And um, I just became convicted to write a book on the value of failure. I was thinking about the uh, Winston Churchill quote that success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And I still had this enthusiasm to, continue to try and to experiment and to express myself both as an entrepreneur and as a creative. Um, and uh, that fuel was going to keep me going no matter what. And I wanted to write about both my own journey and, and uh, you know, lessons that I'd learned from it, as well as, you know, others that I admire. You know, um, again, there's a variety of case studies in the book. Um, James Altucher, the investor, uh, you know, comedian, chess player, podcaster to, um you know, Godfather of Tattooing, Sailor Jerry, Norman Collins, to, um, you know, even like Tim Poole, to all these various case studies that I put in the book. Uh, and uh, I think that really gave it a lot of texture and a lot of relatability uh, and accessibility to the reader. I hear that. What do you consider to be a failure? So I think that's a good question. I got asked that on another podcast recently. You know, the question was, is, is there really such a thing as failure? I mean, if, mm -hmm. if you're viewing it as something that's instructive and constructive, if you're you know, viewing it from that lens, is it even really a failure? I mean, people you know, talk about the Edison quote that I haven't failed. I've just found whatever a thousand things that haven't worked. Right. And, and I think that is one view. But the reality is in our lives, you know, even aside from familial, societal and personal expectations, we do know what a failure event is when we see it. 
you know, there are kind of these optimal North Star um, outcomes that uh, we're looking for. And when we don't reach them, it is a failure. Uh, I've been through a divorce. That's a failure. Doesn't mean it's not okay. Doesn't mean it's not understandable. Doesn't mean that, you know, there can't be good things that come out of it because there is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still is a failure because to me, the optimal state is staying married, uh, honoring that commitment that you made at the altar uh, and continuing to nurture a family within that framework, right? So to me, that is still a failure. So for, the, for me, that would be an example of one failure. Again, it doesn't mean that I'm a failure. It doesn't mean that my ex-wife is a failure. Um, but I think that is, it's a failure to actualize an ideal, uh, mm-hmm. an ideal that might be optimal for, you know, human flourishing. Got it. So to paraphrase that, I mean, I guess the way I would understand it, which is similar to what you said is really missing, a, missing a goal, missing a target, missing yeah. something optimal or ideal that you are aiming for. And I, I think it's important to, I almost think of of failure and success in sort of two ways. I think that there's, there's short-term and long-term. And I think maybe that's when people say something like, oh, you know, there's no such thing as a failure. It's just, if you learn from it, it's not a failure or you're not failing. You're finding out ways of things that don't work. I think that, I think they, they can both kind of be true. I think that to fail long-term to me, that is giving up before the goal has been reached, right? Getting discouraged and saying, okay, you know, I'm not going to do that. And then, you know, short-term temporary failures, those are the things I, we, we all have that yeah. pretty, pretty much all the time. In fact, I'd say if you're putting in effort, you're going to be failing almost every day. Certainly every week, you're going to be failing at various things. But to me, that's, that's like a temporary short-term failure to me the big failure would be oh okay that didn't work so you know what i'm gonna uh, i'm just gonna quit right if i started this podcast and i said okay um you know i'm gonna do this and then i put out four episodes and then i'm just like oh it's not getting as many listens or whatever as i want let me not keep working at it let me just throw in the towel and give up right if someone's on a diet and they're trying to lose weight they're going to have certain days where they fail, right? They're going to have days where they miss the mark. Yes. But to me, yeah, that's a short-term failure. But the long-term failure would be, oh, you know what? I messed up. I'm going to, I'm going to stop exercising. I'm going to stop. I'm going to just eat whatever garbage I want. I'm just completely giving up on this goal. I, have, I still deep down want to achieve it, but I'm just yeah. going to throw in the towel and give up. So I think that the separation between the short-term and the long-term is quite important. I think you're right. And I think I actually have a definition of terms like a glossary in the book because, um, you know, I have a bunch of somewhat unique terms that, that I reference in the book and hammer, hammer on a lot and then some uh, borrowed terms that I want to attribute and define. And I define failure very broadly. I mean, it's everything from, you know, uh, personal gaps in decision making, uh, those kind of avoidable failures to those unavoidable failures that kind of happen around us or enshroud us just by the mere participation in, in the human condition, whether it be the failures of sickness and war. Uh, and I think, you know, you kind of touched on one thing there where you talk about, you know, missing the mark, which really, that is the definition of, 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 the, of the Greek term, Greek term hamartia, which is where we get the word sin from uh, in, in the mm-hmm. Christian tra- tradition, right? So I think that's very interesting. So there is some, some kind of tinge of that within the notion of failure, because it could be just a, a business failure, an entrepreneurial failure, but it can also be an ethical failure. And so the whole missing the mark kind of 
uh, you know, imagery really fits with that. Uh, and, and I think, you know, to your point of the micro failures and macro failures, right? I talk about in the book that if you are trying anything difficult, anything where you are, are striving to actualize your highest usefulness in the world, you have to expect a higher likelihood and frequency uh, of, of failures to travel with that effort. And so it's a matter of preparing for that while at the same time, still trying to have a plan to avoid as many of those failures as possible. Because I think failures are real. Uh, we certainly can frame them to be positive in the end if we learn from them, but they still are failures. So avoiding them is still the key. I mean, this book is not like failure porn, so to speak. This isn't glorifying failure. I mean, that's that's not why I wrote it. I'm not trying to you know, worship at the twisted altar of failure. Just say it's great. Just go out and do whatever you can. Who cares if you fail? It's still painful. It, it causes real uh, you know, uh, difficulty and, and intention and strife, strife in people's lives. It ought to be avoided. But it is also to be expected when you're living out your most authentic, uh, highest version of yourself uh, in an unsafe world. I hear what you're saying there. I would add, though, I, wonder, I would question if perhaps we need another split of categories here, because I don't think that all failures are to be avoided. I think absolutely there are some failures that we want to avoid, but I would say that there are some minor failures, errors, mistakes that if you are going to learn, you have to make, right? You can't actually acquire the skill or acquire the ability without having multiple small failures. If you're learning to sure. play an instrument, you're learning sure. a language, you're learning to do a sport, pick up a new skill. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way you can acquire it. If, if you're so concerned with temporarily failing or making short-term errors, exactly right. you, exactly you, right. it'll block you completely. You'll be paralyzed. You'll think, oh, I can't even, you're trying to learn a language and you're like, you know what? I'm not going to write anything. I'm not going to say anything because yes. the yes. sentence is going to have an error in the pronunciation or in my accent, or I'll get the word wrong or whatever. And actually, if you're learning to speak a language, you really want to just be speaking and making a bunch of errors <laughs> and constantly failing and being corrected. And that's even how we learn our own native languages. Sure, for sure. I mean, we're talking about low consequence yeah, failure, yeah. right? Which is more about experimentational, or you can even categorize that as part of the learning process. I don't even know that I've necessarily called that failures. I would say this mm -hmm. is an expected part of the process of learning X, Y, Z, right? Whereas other parts of that process, at a certain point, after a certain amount of instruction and a certain amount of practice, are more rising to the level of actual failures, right? And they're the ones you actually want to avoid, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, when you're studying for a test and you're doing practice worksheet worksheets and you get them wrong 10, 15 times. Sure. That that's not really failure to me. That's part of the process. But when you go to take the test and then you actually fail, that actually is failure. You want to avoid that part. Right. So I would kind of view it those in two different buckets. So I think we're in alignment there. Um, but, but it goes to your, your point of, you know, the fear of failure, paralyzing and stifling people from going after interesting and difficult pursuits, I think is a big issue. I think we have this, education system and society that kind of, uh, you know, whether overtly or covertly imprints upon us these expectations of a linear life. And within that linear life, there's not a whole lot of, um, you know, perception of deviation uh, allowed. And, and I, I think that is um, something that to, is really limiting for people. And so a lot of the, the people that I write about in the book are people that kind of, you know, deliberately, defiantly deviated from 
linear lives and led nonlinear lives and went after unorthodox career paths where there really was no blueprint on how to actually make it happen, uh, that they had to kind of iterate and uh, take risks and, uh, you know, confront danger in order to carve out their path. Uh, and I think they're, they're really kind of the stories that really animate me and inspire me and resonate with kind of the, the contours of, of my own personal narrative. I hear that. Andrew, here's a question that I myself, I'm wondering the answer to as we're having this conversation, but I'm going to pose it to you. If there is a failure or if you fail, does it always mean that you've made a mistake? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I suppose you could always have had more information. You could have always found ways to prepare more, but I don't think that's realistic. And I think those that are stuck in that kind of neutral gear um, don't move forward the way that they ought. So I have a chapter in the book that, you know, essentially is anchored around a, a Jesse Isler quote of, uh, you know, he says, my life has been ready, fire, aim, and it's been one of adventure, right? And he's a wildly successful you know, entrepreneur, rapper, owns an NBA team, all of that. Uh, and I kind of tweak that just a little bit and say, you know, approach things with a ready, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> ready, fire, adjust your aim in flight kind of, uh, you know, approach, right? Uh, you can't wait for perfect conditions to get something started. Mm -hmm. You take as much input as you can, Seek as much wisdom and information as you can, but at a certain point, you have to just get started and then let the failures come and deal with them as, as they come to the best of your ability. Um, you know, I talk about kind of the duality of, of the Peter Thiel uh, from zero to one quote about, you know, having a plan, having a bad plan is better than having no plan at all. You still need a plan. So the duality of that versus Mike Tyson saying, it's great to have a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And I think both are true. Like <laughs> you need to have a plan, but you might get punched in the mouth. So prepare to iterate along the way as failures and roadblocks and detours uh, are presented. Mm -hmm. What are the five rules in the book? Failure rule number one is uh, failure purifies. So again, it's the idea of the Phoenix must burn to emerge. Uh, that oftentimes our failures are a way of kind of uh, burning off the kind of uh, incidental slop that uh, builds into our lives, whether it's stale or bad ways of thinking, whether it's relationships that aren't serving us, whether it's a career path that aren't, isn't serving us. And I think sometimes in those failure moments where, where we feel like everything's falling apart, we need to step back and take a look and see what's being burned off of, of us and think about how that might actually be good for us as we now have an opportunity to kind of reshape our thinking or reorganize our life to move forward in a stronger or more holistic way. So that's failure rule number one is failure purifies. Failure rule number two is nothing is safe. Uh, and I have many examples of this rule in the book. I think most notably I talk about uh, Mike Rowe and how he had an episode of Dirty Jobs called uh, um, Safety Third, which was really just to say, you know, not necessarily put safety third, but let's not put safety first all the time. Uh, let's really look at safety as something that needs to be weighed against other competing priorities that might have higher value than safety. And, and I think that's an important lens to view yourself in as an entrepreneur, as a creative, if you're doing something bold or something, you know, where you're coloring outside the lines. Um, and failure rule number three is money is spiritual, which really kind of stems from a quote from um, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, author of Thou Shall Prosper. 
just this idea that if you're avoiding the failure territory of envy and greed and you're viewing money properly, uh, where you're, you, you know, you're not worshiping money, nor are you reviling it, uh, you're using it really as a thank you note uh, where, you know, every day you go through these transactions and then each one you're, you're, you're putting placed value on something, which is really a representation of your measured thankfulness. Right. And in that way, money really can be a, a, a kind of dispassionate tool to be a multiplier of blessings, uh, to really help people uh, help themselves and help others. And I think so kind of the, the glorification and the demonization of money needs to be avoided as failure spaces. Uh, and we can view money as really this, this tool of spirituality to uh, invoke and evoke blessings in our lives. Uh, failure number four goes back to what we were just talking about, which is failure prevention. So it's a strategy for preventing failure. I call it the thing one and thing two dependency, which has nothing to do with a uh, cat in a hat. <laughs> imagining a uh, disheveled Tony Soprano waking up in his white bathrobe, lighting his first cigar of the day and say, hey, you got the thing one here, thing one enabler with your thing two pursuit, uh, and they got to go together. So it's like thing one is your enabler pursuit, which is kind of potentially that low meaning pursuit that provides stability, financial undergirding, uh, and, and just a platform for you to be able then uh, in your off hours, pursue a North Star pursuit, which might be a higher representation of your highest usefulness in the world. I go through many examples of that in the book. Uh, most notably, there's um, a record label from uh, uh, Boston called Bridge Nine Records. The owner, Chris Wren, launched that label by uh, building an enabler pursuit, his thing one, uh, to pay for it, which was a merchandise company called Yankee Suck, where he would go uh, you know, at Fenway and sell all this merchandise to the Boston fans who hated the Yankees. And while it might've been good money chasing after bad, he used the profits from that to then kickstart his record labels and underwrite his first like 15, 16 releases. And so it's those creative types of ways of, of, of uh, creating a thing, one thing, two dependency that I detailed the book, which I think is a good failure prevention mentality uh, as people go about trying to pursue the North star dreams. Um, failure rule number five is you are not your failures. So this is the idea of decoupling your failure events from your identity and seeing them just as events uh, that you can learn from, uh, that you can you know, be purified from, you know, reference back to failure rule number one. And so I go through a variety of case studies in the book about that. Uh, everything from former gang leader Elgin James, who's actually the brother of Jocko Willink, and he was a, a, a gang leader for a violent, militant, straight edge, hardcore gang. Uh, that would beat up anybody that used drugs or alcohol at punk rock shows uh, in, in the late 90s and early 2000s. He then redeemed himself, uh, detached himself from, from his negative identity, rebuilt his reputation while still serving time for an extortion charge, uh, became a mentee of Robert Redford, became a screenwriter, and was a screenwriter for Mayans FX, the spinoff to Sons of Anarchy on FX. Um, so I go through his story. I go through uh, commentator Glenn Beck's story of uh, prior to him being who he was, he was a, you know, a, a divorced alcoholic DJ, dabbled in cocaine use, was obnoxious to everybody around him, you know, found God, found purpose, uh, you know, decoupled himself from his failures and found a way to pursue his North Star dream in that pivot. So it's stories like that that I go through that kind of connect to failure rule number five, you are not your failures. I hear that. And when you were writing the book, did you did you directly reach out to some of these people that you've mentioned or these people you've met or know or have conversations with? Yeah, some of them. Uh, okay. Those that I knew and, you know, I would, you know, kind of go back and forth with them on what I was thinking. 
uh, others I, I did not. I mean, the stories are public, and I, I just mm -hmm. kind of extracted them from you know, what is known and what is public. Got it. Yeah, no, it's interesting because a, a, a few of those names are people you know I've I've met and know personally to some degree. Some of them have been on this podcast. I've been on some of their podcasts, and yeah. you know when you, when you mentioned guys like you know James Altucher, I've spoken to many times. Uh, Glenn Beck, I've yeah. spoken to and met several times, and you know seen everything he's built there with with the Blaze and. It's even interesting looking at certain people's backstories because sometimes it seems so far removed from where they are now that you can't even really imagine That's that right. they went through all that or that it's even the same human being. Sometimes it doesn't even seem like the same person. And I think there's something very fascinating about that. I'm, I'm deeply interested, as I'm sure you are yourself, just as about what I'd call the human condition, yes. right? We live in this, whether now or historically, I think human beings are the most interesting thing on the planet. And life is this incredible combination of joy and sadness and success and tragedy and failure and unavoidable catastrophe and avoidable catastrophe and all of this stuff, I mean, it's it's complicated enough on an individual level. And then when you take millions, hundreds of millions, billions yeah. of people, put them all on the planet and have them interact with each other, it uh, it's complicated. I think it's beautiful, but it's very complicated. It can get very, it can get dark. It can get wonderful. It can get to the point where you have days and times where you feel this real love for humanity and then other times where you, there's this darkness and you're just like oh my gosh what is wrong with human beings and how on earth they're <laughs> you know like you especially when you when you read through history or you see yeah. certain things going on around the world and you're just like what is what is up with people yeah no it's interesting you you, know, you mentioned meeting james altucher and glenn beck i mean their stories really resonated with me uh if i had not read choose yourself by james altucher i don't think i would have written this book uh, if I had not been introduced to who James Altucher was by hanging on the Glenn Beck program, I wouldn't have written this book. You know, so it's like these kind of connections do inspire, right? And if both of them uh, held on to identifying closely with their failure events, they would not have resurrected from them and become became who they became, which has gone on to influence and impact and bless others with their with their stories and their message. Uh, and um, you know, I just find that inspiring, fascinating. And, and really full of hope. And that's kind of why I wrote this book. Uh, I wrote this book and I'm putting a lot of effort into building kind of the tentacles around getting the book out there because I believe that these stories have power. I believe that these messages, these lessons, these rules have power uh, to really potentially be, you know, at least one of the pieces to, to help somebody put their life back together in certain crucible moments. Uh, I was talking to a, a friend the other day uh, who, you know, decades ago, was a crack addict, was a criminal, was a thief, and now is 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 uh, in a high position in a very strong organization. And he he was talking to me about the book and uh, actually talking to me about my son who's uh, in recovery uh, from addiction and and going through some struggles. And he's like, you know, you don't know what the arc of time is going to show. Uh, he was talking about failure rule number five: you are not your failures, and how he's learned to kind of invoke that in his own life to get to where he has and have that contrast of his current self versus versus his past self. Uh, and, and I just think that message of, of people learning how to appropriately shed uh, the failures of the past, particularly ones that might be more ethical failures, 
with an acknowledgement that you still have messiness and consequences you have to deal with. You know, it's not like you can just, you know, cause harm or cause dysfunction and, and walk away clean, right? You still have to deal with those results, but there is that light on the other side if you choose to chase after it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that number five is incredibly important. I think, in my opinion, a mistake a lot of people make is identifying into and sometimes even taking refuge or pride in failures or negative labels or negative aspects about themselves. And I know for some people, from what I've heard, this can be part of what they consider a certain... I don't know, healing process or type of radical honesty, but I don't know. To me, something about it, for example, if someone has had problems with alcohol or with drugs and they very explicitly and continuously strongly identify with the alcoholic label or the addict label or something, I'm not an expert on these issues, but to me, that doesn't sound like the best way to do it. I don't know why this is not denying if, if someone's has a problem or has had a problem, but to me, it's strange to kind of almost some, for some, I've come across people where it seems almost, almost like a badge of honor, right? Almost like they're kind of taking pride in that. And that becomes who they are. They'll even be describing themselves and they'll say, I am, I'm that thing. I'm an addict. Even if maybe they've been sober for five years and they're still calling themselves an addict. And I'm like, why, why, why'd you call yourself that? I don't yeah. understand that. Yeah. No. And I think, I think that's a tough one because it is part of people's stories. But I think mm-hmm. it depends on the emphasis, right? I think when I talk about decoupling yourself, uh, you know, from the optics of your failure, it does kind of imply disidentification uh, and you can't really disidentify if you're still immersed in it and you're still claiming it as a core part of, of who you are and of how you present yourself to the world. So I think there is certainly some, uh, some nuance there, but mostly you're right. Like you have to be reborn into something new to truly detach from your failures. That is the purification of failure. That is failure rule number one, failure purifies. It does require a deliberate immersion in a rebirth, you know, um, cycle. Mm -hmm. And what's been the, when did the book come out? Came out the end of September. Okay. And what's been the response and feedback? Like what's that been like so far? Um, very, very positive, uh, getting a lot of good, uh, feedback online. Um, appearing on about two to three podcasts or radio shows per week. So I'm going to continue the, the, the media tour and just kind of evangelize the message and continue to network with people. Um, and it seems to be resonating with people. I mean, particularly for me, the, the subcultural spaces of the, the cigar culture and, uh, the punk rock music world, since I have a lot of kind of intersecting case studies within those worlds, but then even the, even the larger kind of entrepreneurial thought space, uh, mm-hmm. Is also resonating with it as well, um, you know, as well as you know, faith-based kind of uh, spaces and um, uh, even kind of you know the libertarian ethos. I mean, while this mm-hmm. is not a political book at all, I mean, I have quotes of everybody from Stephen Colbert to Ben Shapiro. I, I have blurbs from um, everybody from Christian Picciolini, author of Breaking Hate, who is, is very very liberal, to a blurb from Andrew Wilco, who's also a friend who has the Wilco Majority Conservative Radio Show. So it really crosses the political spectrum. But at the core of it for me, um, you know, I think about the Breitbart quote that, um, you know, uh, politics is downstream from culture. And I would go one step farther and say personal ethos is downstream from culture. 
And so for me, I'm focusing more on personal ethos uh, with, with the content of this book in the same way that kind of Arthur Brooks, the, 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 the great strategist, libertarian thinker and author is doing a similar kind of thing in his career. Uh, because, you know, I really think that that is kind of the controllable transcendent realm for people to start at. Right. I mean, many people are called the kind of macro political, uh, you know, activism. But some people, I think, are called to more of talking about personal development and how to how to kind of uh, think about your, you know, your daily micro decisions, how to kind of maintain that internal PMA, positive mental attitude, not to Napoleon Hill and my man, John Joseph, who who wrote the foreword of this book, uh, frontman for the Cro-Mags, author of The PMA Effect. Uh, it's, 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 it's that and how that could affect your relationships and your work life. I think it really all starts there. And for me, I have, you know, very much more of a, of a right-leaning libertarian kind of ethos that informs uh, how I live my life. And that's visible to a degree in the book as I go through case studies of Lemmy Kilmister from Motorhead, who was more libertarian-leaning or or uh, godfather of traditional tattooing, Sa uh, Norman Sailor Jerry Collins, who had his own radio show back in the day as Old Ironside, it was a libertarian radio show, or you know, even you know, more libertarian Jason, I guess, Tim Pool, there's a case study of him. So I think that's probably visible. Somebody wants to try to try to like pin me down to some sort of political <laughs> leaning, but it, it, it's 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 not a political book, but it does have, I think, uh, applicability and will appeal to those of more of like a libertarian mindset. I hear that. Well, so, I mean, freedom shouldn't be controversial. I mean, I think sharing your story is so important. I do believe that most adults probably should write a book. I know that most won't, but I often think about how both positivity and negativity can ripple outward. We, we touched on this earlier, just the importance of sharing one's story and experiences. And I'd say the same uh, of talents and abilities. We all are unique. We have different personalities. We grow up in different places, different perspectives, experiences, things we go through. Every single person has their burdens, their challenges, their right. difficulties, their successes, their failures, and so on. And I'd like to hear more of them. It's actually yeah. one reason why I love doing a podcast and why I enjoy reading and I enjoy social media. And I like it when people just share their, share their stories, because I think in this day and age, especially perhaps with social media, it's very easy to look at people and you just see the surface, right? I'm, when I'm walking around every day, all day, I'm always aware that everyone I see, you're, you can only see the surface. Even someone who may look like they're super successful, someone might look like they have everything that somebody would want, right? Someone might see someone who's got this and they've got that and they're wealthy and they're famous and they're successful. And the average person might think, oh, I would like to trade places with that person. Mm -hmm. And I'm always like, well, beware of that thought because right. you don't know. That's right. Well, number one, you don't know what they've been through to get there, but you also don't know what's actually going on in their life. You don't yeah. know their health condition mentally or physically. You don't know what's happening with their family or in their marriages or in their relationships. You don't know if they're lonely. Have they got friends? What are they? You don't, we don't see any of that, right? We don't see any of that. You just see the surface. And I think in many cases, if people knew the full story, they may actually not want to trade places with that person. They might find, oh, okay, actually, I don't have all of these things and accolades or money mm -hmm. that that person does. But actually, deep down, I'm a lot happier. I'm a lot yeah. more content and so on. So I just think it's really important for these stories to be told so that we can understand each other better. I think it also lets people know, oh, actually, you know what? I'm not, I'm not alone. There are millions of people out there. I mean, if you think of it, 
unless you've been through something extraordinarily unique, yeah. it's pretty much guaranteed that there are millions, if not billions of people who have been through the same thing, right? There aren't that many experiences that are so unique that, yeah. oh, it's only happened to you, right? It's ha it hasn't happened to anyone else. But I think that if those stories are not shared, it can make people think, oh, wow, I'm dealing with this completely by myself. No one else has been through this. This is it. My life is over. I don't know what to do. But actually, when you hear from people, especially people who have gone on to have some success and joy and happiness, and it's like, oh, okay, you know what? That guy also went through this thing. That gal also went through this thing. And by them sharing the story, that suggests to me that I can also get out of this rut or I can also elevate. Yeah, no, I think that's that's part of the reason I wrote the book, too. It's it's to kind of aggregate all these stories that are unique, but also have shared common lessons that can be extracted from them. While the stories might be unique, while the events might be somewhat unique or or the uh, the convergence of events might be unique. The lessons that can be pulled out of them are, are applicable to many. Right. And so it is that shared humanity that 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 being participating in the human condition, which is imperfect is another theme that I kind of exalt in the book, which is the Japanese term of wabi-sabi, uh, which is, uh, as David Lee Roth would say, it's a, it's a little perfect because it, it's, it's perfect because it's a little, you know, effed up. Uh, so, you know, that's what, really, what is that? What is that term? Wabi-sabi, which is essentially the beauty of imperfection. Okay. Right. And I think like seeing that things through that lens, I think can help you to what, to your point, separate, you know, an envious impulse and convert it into an inspirational pursuit where you might view somebody instead of being envious of them, you might just be curious and you study them. You find out what might merit inspiration in their story or their mindset. And at the same time, you find a way to be content in all circumstances yourself, just like the Apostle Paul would talk about, whether rich or poor, whether free or enslaved, that you're content or free or in prison, that you're content whatever stage you are while still striving to be better while extracting the, uh, the, the positive lessons from others without being envious, you know? And I think that's a difficult thing to, or a difficult state of mind to fall into. Um, but that that's part of, of, of the, uh, the message of the book as well. I hear that. Andrew, what do you think is the biggest challenge for where we are right now in a society or in a culture? Different people have different answers to this, but in your perspective, what do you think is the biggest challenge that, say, the average American or average Westerner is going through? Um, you know, I would go just back to uh, the fact that we have more and more uh, drifted from our connection to ancient thought. We've been more obsessed with information and less curious about wisdom. And, you know, I think of you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, whatever framework it might be from a faith perspective, whether it's the non-attachment ideology of Buddhism, whether it's the, the non-faith expressions of wisdom of Stoicism, whether it's the, uh, the, the, the spirituality of Christianity or ancient Judaism, or you know, I think of the Maharala Prague talking about letting the spiritual lead the physical. I mean, I think all of that goes back to us not knowing how to be still, be silent, to take appropriate time to take inventory of ourselves and all facets of, facets of our life, uh, mental, physical, spiritual relationships, and to really focus on eternality and transcendence. Uh, so for me, that has been the core for me where the externals can shift and change and rearrange. And while I still want to maximize the externalism in life, my life and live a big life and thoroughly enjoy my life, even materially, uh, it all comes back to that core having to be spiritual. 
and that's not nourished without intentional times uh, of, of solitude, you know, with the surplus. Uh, and, and that to me has been very beneficial. And I think that society would benefit from kind of drifting back more towards curiosity of, of, of ancient ways of reflection versus, um, you know, kind of the, you know, the messy nonstop ADD driven uh, informational onslaught that we all uh, are, are forced to navigate every day. I hear that. Do you have any habits or practices that you personally do in order to keep that sanity and perspective? hundred percent. Yeah. Weightlifting, hiking, cigars in the hot tub, uh, you know, uh, in between meeting, getting on my knees, praying in the office, whatever I can do to stay connected to the divine and to keep that, uh, vertical, vertical communication going as the horizontal chaos surrounds me. I hear that. Andrew, before we wrap it up, where can people find you online and where can they check out your book as well? Sure. The book can be found anywhere books are consumed online in all formats, including an awesome audio book that was done with some great musical accents within it. Uh, Andrew, did you record it? Did you record it yourself? Did you narrate it? I did not. I actually had okay. a voice actor. Yeah. Jay Asang, who was an actor uh, in Twin Peaks on Showtime, did it. And he did a great job. Uh, maybe next time I'll do it. Um, so uh, website is andrewthorpeking.com. No E on the end of Thorpe. From there, you can find uh, links to sign up for a free Failure Rules mini course and get on my email list. You can find awesome merchandise from my new um, uh, merch company, Soul on Fire Supply Company, which echoes a lot of the ethos of the book with some really cool designs. Uh, as well as there's a soundtrack to the book because I love music and all stories need soundtracks, including failure stories. So you'll find a link to that. Uh, and um, also my YouTube channel. I do a lot of great kind of produced videos to animate the themes of the book in, in a different way. That's awesome, man. Tell me a little bit more about the uh, the music that goes with the book. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'm a punk hardcore guy. So a lot of it's punk and hardcore stuff. Bands like Madball, Terror, uh, uh, the Rum Jacks, an Irish punk band, Flatfoot 56, who I worked with. Lots of different bands. There's also some kind of, uh, you know, um, outliers of, of, of more mainstream stuff, whether it's Eminem or Machine Gun Kelly or Everlast, who used to be in the House of Pain or, uh, you know, even have a Bob Seger song on there. So it was really like these were specifically the songs uh, for which the lyrics buoyed me during hard times and failures that I wrote about in the book. Or they were songs that I was actually listening to and inspired me as I wrote the book. So it literally is the authentic soundtrack to the book. Got it. Awesome. Andrew yeah. Thorpe King, thanks for coming on Real Talk with Zulu, man. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me, man. No doubt. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.